Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Buddhist Center podcast with me, Chandra Dasa, on my own this week. Unfortunately, nobody from the team could be here for this particular conversation, which is a shame for them, but still a delight for me because I get to welcome back to the podcast after, I think, a couple of years' absence, my friend Tejananda. Tejananda has been a leading light in the area of meditation teaching within our community for decades now. Until recently, he lived at the Vajraloka Retreat Centre in Wales and also has a very strong connection to the Tree Ratna Dharma community in San Francisco in the USA. We might hear a little bit about that, I suppose, in the conversation. He's also, I think it can be said, an early pioneer of in-depth meditation practice and teaching online. He's been very generous in working with us at Dharma Chakra on the Buddha Center Live, and he's been a great supporter in helping us get home retreats off the ground through the COVID-19 pandemic and well beyond it now at this point in time. So welcome Tejananda, lovely to have you. How are you? I think you've just finished moving house, so are all the boxes unpacked yet? Yeah, that's right. I've just moved from Vajraloka to Wrexham, which for those that aren't familiar, is a largish city in North Wales. We're just near the border here. In fact, on my bike, I can be over the border in about 15 minutes. I have most of my stuff in boxes still. (laughs) That's quite a big move, isn't it, from a retreat centre where you're meditating a lot of the time to a home in in the city. But you're still quite involved, aren't you, with Fadraloka? It's not that you've just abandoned the retreat centre. No, not at all. In a sense, all I've done is move out of the community. I'm still as much involved with the teaching and the teacher training and with the retreats themselves. At the moment, I'm doing just as much as I've been doing before. Which is excellent for all of us. So you're here today because you've been doing this fantastic series of home retreats with us over the past few years. I think the first one was in 2021. We're actually in the middle of a trilogy or we're at the end of a trilogy, but maybe it won't be a trilogy. Maybe it'll be like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. There'll be the fourth part in the trilogy or something like that. We'll come on to all of the sort of backlog of retreats in a moment. But first, if you're thinking of joining us on Tejananda's next home retreat, it's called Emptiness and Compassion, The Divine Abodes, and it starts on March 29th for a week, Friday till Thursday. Three sessions a day of in-depth meditation practice and teaching and companionship with others online. We schedule them for different time zones so that most people around the world can get at least two in without having to get up at four in the morning or anything like that. Although people do. It's amazing. Every time we run one of these retreats, someone gets up in the middle of the night in Australia or India or somewhere. There are supporting resources online and you can catch up on video of the teaching sessions if you happen to miss one. For this particular retreat, we're asking that you're a fairly experienced meditator to take part. Details about that are on the booking page, and you can get in touch with us via the link there and in the show notes if you have any questions. But to get a sense of your approach generally, Tejananda, I'd actually like to go back to the beginning of our run of retreats. Your first one with us online, exploring our system of practice in Triratna, meditating in the mandala, it was called. I think it was 2021, probably right near the heart of the first wave of lockdown. A strong time for everyone. And I remember it just being fantastic. Suddenly we had this opportunity to take the chance to go deeper when there was so much chaos going on. Now, for anyone who isn't that familiar with our community, to recap the central premise, the approach we take to Dharma practice in Triratna can be experienced as, I think in your words, a dynamic mandala of five key principles. Integration, positive emotion, spiritual death, spiritual rebirth, spiritual receptivity. 
even reading it out now. It sounds so intriguing. We did a whole podcast about all of that, which we can link to in the show notes. But I assume this still informs your approach now in the current series of retreats. What is it you think these five stages capture well about Dharma practice and meditation in particular? And has your sense of it as a system changed over the years since that first retreat? Yeah, I don't know that it's changed a lot since that first retreat. I do see those five areas as five principles, which embody most of the main aspects of Buddhist practice. So, I mean, Sangrachita originally introduced them in terms of a system of meditation, and it was later extended, as it's able to do, because it's principle to all areas of practice. Integration is what's traditionally called shamatha, or calming the mind, primarily. Then positive emotion is basically the Brahmaviharas, which are the divine abodes of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And also, to some extent, the bodhicitta, or the awakening heart. But that really fits into all of the areas. Spiritual death comprises all of the approaches to wisdom within the Buddhist tradition and specifically the main aspects that we point to in Triratna. Spiritual rebirth as a principle I see it as the corollary of spiritual death. In other words, spiritual death, the death aspect is seeing through something and the rebirth aspect is, you could just say, life without that delusion. But it's also related in Sangrasha's teaching to the whole area of the imaginative aspect of our meditation practice, particularly sadhana, visualization of a Buddha and so on, that whole area. Then receptivity is not a practice at all. It's no practice. It's just sitting. It's formless meditation. It's just being. All of those are ways of talking about it. So the first four are all practice in one form or another or cultivation. And the final one is non-practice or non-meditation. So you've been doing this great series of home retreats with us on the, I suppose, vastly intriguing idea, ideally the experience of emptiness in Buddhism. Let's get into that as a way into the current retreat. What is emptiness getting at here in as non-conceptual terms as you can muster? And why do you see meditating on the experience of emptiness as key to the system of practice? There are lots of different understandings and definitions of emptiness, but fundamentally it's pointing to the fact that experience is empty of something. Yeah. So, I mean, for instance, a basic thing that experience would be seen as empty of is substantial and separate self-entity. So that self-entity, we believe it exists, we feel it exists, but if we inquire into it in a very deep way, we find that actually it's just something that we're making up and believing in. So emptiness applies to all sorts of areas of practice. You know, for instance, we've got the three marks. There's impermanence. So that's saying that experience is empty of permanence. Experience is also empty of ultimate satisfactoriness. Not that there's no satisfactoriness, but we can't find ultimate satisfactoriness in our general experience. The third one is actually not self. So, you know, there is no self-entity to be found. So all of those are emptiness teachings, actually. They're not usually spoken of in that way, but that's what they are. Basically, you could say that fundamentally our experience, our actual experience is empty of everything that we construct mentally. If you're listening to this and that's already blown your mind, you're not saying your experience isn't real. You're just saying it's not real in the way that you think it is. 
it's not something to be relied upon in the way that you think it is, which in a way is quite practically demonstrable, isn't it, in real life? All sorts of studies on the nature of memory or the nature mm -hmm. of perception that show just how differently different people experience different situations, aside from any so-called objective facts about it. Yeah, exactly. This is becoming part of our scientific reality as well. I would say as science catches up with Buddhism, it's discovering all <laughs> Nice. And also, you know, establishing, if you like, neurological correlates to what Buddhists have been practicing and realizing for thousands of years. There's something incredibly reassuring about the fact that thousands of years ago, human beings kind of noticed some gap between the way they experience things and the way they articulate things to mm. themselves and to other people. And some other aspect of reality, it's almost like we thought, oh, it's not the whole of how I see it or something. It's like that yeah. perspective is not new. No, it's not new at all. So in previous retreats, you've looked at emptiness in different ways. We had emptiness and the nature of mind. We also explored a text called the Heart Sutra, part of the perfection of wisdom tradition in Buddhism. We'll come back to each of those actually in a minute, but this time the other side of the coin is compassion, emptiness and compassion. And you're particularly exploring the series of meditation practices traditionally called the Divine Abodes or the Brahma Viharas, if you're familiar with Sri Ratna. It's also actually quite widely practiced in the rest of the Western Buddhist world, and I guess the Eastern Buddhist world these days. The Brahma Viharas, love and compassion, kindfulness, which is a bit of an awful word, but it's something that I've heard used much more frequently recently, as people have maybe realized that mindfulness in and of itself isn't quite enough, or opens out into a wider experience that's emotionally based and implies a change of perspective emotionally. Now, we've done retreats on the Brambiharas before on the Buddhist Centre Live with Ratna Vandana, which we'll link to in the show notes if you're interested in listening. Why did you decide to focus on them this time in your ongoing exploration of emptiness and meditation? What are the practices about for anyone who doesn't know it and how do they fit with emptiness particularly? They're preliminary to the exploration of emptiness that we're going to be doing in the Mahayana the second main phase of the development of Buddhism, there's a huge amount of emphasis on emptiness and compassion. You know, it's said to be the essence of, well, the bodhicitta, the awakening heart, which is a big emphasis in the Mahayana. So emptiness and compassion are both ways into the awakening heart and also ways from which it's expressed. Yeah, so compassion is integral there. Now, you can't have compassion without love, without metta, if you like, it's a phase of metta, or it's a response of metta, of love, to the experience of suffering, or to the knowledge of suffering. So compassion is integral. The other two Brahmaviharas are inseparable from the basis of unconditional love, of metta. Sympathetic joy, or just joy in others' happiness and goodness and so forth, is integral. And the union of those, if you like, is equanimity, which is a highly positive state which isn't going to be upset by difficulties. In terms of the practice of them, as probably most people know, each Brahmavihara practice has a number of stages, either five or six, and you know, this is covered in Brahmavihara retreats. 
generally speaking, there's a lot to get on with there. Now, I'm hoping the people who come on this retreat will be familiar with the divine abodes because I'm not going to teach them in that way. I'm going to assume that level of knowledge of them. And I'm going straight into what, in terms of those five stage or six stage practices, would be the final stage, you know, which is one in which it's simply there. You know, that quality, let's say it is metta, it's love, is simply there. One way it's spoken of is metta or love without an object, which means that you're not particularly thinking of any specific individual. What you're opening to is just everything and everybody, all life. You know, so everything and everybody is included. That's the way in which we're going to approach it. I mean, there will be some lead up to that. We're not just going to go into that suddenly. But it's really, really important just to be able to dwell in that state. And if you do, you get to a stage which is called a liberation of the heart, liberation of the mind, yeah? where there's just a universal sense of that love or compassion or joy, equanimity. You know, it's said in the early text to be a liberation of the heart. So it's just completely undivided, completely universal. From there, from having that sense of that liberation, we're moving into the area of emptiness. The emptiness teachings that we're going to be approaching this through come from the early suttas, the early discourses of Buddhism. There's one called the Shorter Emptiness Sutta, the Chula Shunyata Sutta. Sutta just means discourse. In this particular practice, on the basis of having established a strong degree of the divine abodes, we're going to gradually deconstruct everything. We're going to see the emptiness of everything that is made up, everything that is conceptually fabricated. I mean, in the Sutra itself, you've got a scenario in ancient India at the time of the Buddha where the monks would go into the village. I mean, they still do this, of course, in, in traditional Buddhist countries. They'd go into the village or the town, they'd beg for their food, and then they'd come back to the forest to eat. The Buddha's first contemplation with this, and we can apply this very easily to our immediate situation, is that you contemplate that if you've left the village behind and you come into the forest, there is actually an experience of forest but your experience is empty of village or town. So in terms of our experience right now, presumably we're in a particular place, in a particular room, probably, and our experience is empty of the town, city or village that we're in. It's actually empty of the other rooms in our house. We don't have that experience. So that's the basic teaching of emptiness. It's establishing an absence of something. And there's a very important second aspect to that, which is that you notice that your experience is empty of the disturbances, you know, in this case of, of city or village. But there are the disturbances which are present in the room. There are the disturbances which are here. Disturbances are kind of a, a way of talking about unsatisfactoriness or dukkha. So that's the basic method. From there, the practitioner goes into more meditative states and becomes focused fully on the element of earth. So the focus on the element of earth excludes everything else. And so you do the same contemplation from there. There is this experience of earth. It's called the unitary experience of the earth element. But your experience is empty of village, it's empty of the other monastics. You know, there's just this experience of earth. 
So Earth represents form, ordinary form. Then we go off into what are called the formless attainments or the perceptions of formlessness, which are space, consciousness, no-thingness, and neither perception nor non-perception. So we're getting into pretty deep water here. People are probably freaked out already, it's fine. (laughs) Well, I have a question about this. Maybe this will bring it back down to earth a little bit. Is When I was looking at the notes earlier for this retreat, I noticed that you actually said that the approach in the shorter discourse on emptiness is more direct and experiential than some developed by later schools of Buddhism, the the Mahayana, maybe even the Vajrayana. Can you say more about what the difference is there? Like, what does it mean to say something's more experiential than a later school? And presumably the later schools didn't just lose their way. In a way, they were probably trying to correct something in relationship to the earlier tradition. So what is it about all that? Was it to do with it becoming unmoored from Earth, as it were, from something grounded in experience? What's the change that happens between different approaches? I think probably what I was thinking of then was that in the later traditions, especially monastic traditions, and I'm thinking particularly of Tibet, where this wonderful monastic training, where the monastics basically argue in a very ritualistic way about topics like emptiness. So, I mean, when I was a younger older member, <laughs> you know, about 30 years ago, I was fascinated by this topic of emptiness. I bought a load of books about emptiness, mostly by various academics, which were like 800 pages long, full of all of these arguments, establishing emptiness in, you know, 24,000 different ways. I'm exaggerating there, but, you know, it was very, very complicated. And it was based on this kind of monastic tradition of talking about emptiness in a great deal of detail. Now, of course, there's a huge amount of good stuff there, but what we need is something that we can get to grips with experientially. You know, so just coming back to what we were talking about before, we've got our experience right now of this room. That is our experience. We can't deny it. Here we are. We have to be somewhere. Yeah, I mean, if somebody's listening to the podcast while they're going for a walk, you've just got your immediate experience of where you are, but you haven't got any experience of anywhere else. You can establish that for yourself directly. Your experience is just of what your experience is of right now. It's not of something else. If we're thinking, at the moment, we just have one thought going on. We don't have experience of all the billions of thoughts that we've had in the past or all the billions of thoughts we may have in the future. There's just this right now. This is what our experience is. So this is what it's pointing to. Our experience is empty of everything that's not in experience. Right. I suppose this brings us back to that first retreat around the Heart Sutra and ideas of wisdom in Buddhism. You drew this distinction back then, which I'm guessing will still apply this time, that the spiritual idea here isn't just to bamboozle you. It's not just that. In a way, it does that, and that can have an interesting effect. It could even be a good condition for the arising of something else. But you spoke about a more direct engagement with our whole sense of things that can help us see Mm. through the fixed nature of ourself and not Mm. just intellectually like it's something that goes beyond that and you described it then as a hands-on method of practice and realization i suppose i connect that to one of the ways you tend to teach one of the ways you focus in your teaching on embodied practice Mm. and i'm assuming there's a connection between embodiment and being rooted in your body as you move through a landscape or as you sit at your desk or wherever you are There's a connection between being embodied and how we stop words like emptiness and compassion just becoming abstract Mm. and vague or even exotic or stimulating. Even if we're regular meditators, like that's a real risk is that we can get caught up in the equivalent of all those books you bought as a young enthusiastic (laughs) order member. There's something about being embodied 
I'm assuming is going to be key to this own retreat. Yeah, it's absolutely key. I mean, it's not just key to this retreat. I think it's key to the whole of Dharma practice and particularly wisdom practice. The word wisdom is not very helpful in a way because it suggests something which is conceptual, but this is non-conceptual wisdom that we're pointing to. You could say that wisdom lies in our body. It lies in our actual experience. Yeah. It doesn't lie in all of the mental concepts and fabrications that we make up about our experience. The emptiness process, if you like, is just seeing that in every single way that we can. So unless we start by becoming embodied, we're just going to be in the mind. I think even people who've been meditating for quite a long time haven't seen this. You can even do the mindfulness of breathing in quite a conceptual way by sort of imagining the breath coming in through your nose, going down into your lungs, filling your lungs and coming out again, and not just feeling it, not just simply feeling it. That is really, really important. Mm -hmm. Uh, So unless we start with embodiment, we're going to be setting off on the wrong foot. This is classic, isn't it? Even the first time you go to a Buddhist center somewhere and somebody leads you on a body scan, for example, maybe as a prelude to another meditation practice like the mindfulness of breathing. I think you've pointed this out, actually. I remember you were leading a body scan, but you were saying, be careful that it's not the idea of your hand. You know, It's not the idea of your foot or exactly. the idea of your head or your chest or whatever it is. It's quite easy to fall into that. It's quite a feature of human consciousness that we can, in the moment of experience, imagine ourselves rather than experience ourselves. Yeah. Although imagination is important, there is a distinction. Yeah, I mean, there's an almost absolute distinction because, you know, something that we're imagining is in the mind and the body is in the body. I mean, this is why in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha is always saying things like the body in the body and thoughts in thoughts and emotions in emotions as in and of themselves. This is something that was very much part of my process. For a long, long time, I thought it was all about the mind and that the body was boring. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe as we I mean, get older, our bodies are a bit more boring than they used to be. <laughs> yeah. But actually, it gradually dawned on me, you know, and thanks to various very good teachings from some very, very important teachers to me, it became clear to me that, yeah, I'd just been mainly practicing in the mind, with the mind. That was just useless in many ways. I mean, it's, it's why I felt I wasn't making much progress with my practice or, you know, deepening into more insightful states until I realized the importance of being embodied and not just in the direct sense of the sensate body or somatic body, but also in hearing, in seeing, in smelling and tasting. The five so-called body senses are absolutely fundamental to practice mm. and we ignore them at our peril. And what were your avenues into that kind of practice? Where were your roots in? And did that lead you back to the Triatna system of practice, you know, deriving from Sankarakshita and make you look at that differently once you'd made that transition from mind-centered meditation to body-centered meditation? Well, the primary people who took me in this direction in terms of the order, first of all, Paramananda, he's been going on about the body for a long, long time. And then living at Vajraloka 15 years ago, Balajit, he also was very, very keen on the body. I think it was him who introduced me to Reggie Ray. Reggie Ray has a very, very strong emphasis on the body. Mm. So I found that really helpful. Once I'd assimilated some of that experientially, I could see exactly how it applied to all of the areas of our system of practice. 
This is really fascinating. And I think it's quite encouraging to hear this because, as you know, Paramananda also does a home retreat every year with us. One's just finished. Every January, usually he does it. And actually now Balajit and Viveka and Singhashri are on the cycle of home retreats. And they're very concerned with this whole question of the body. And I know that's part of your connection to San Francisco too, is that you've been meditating with that community. And I think particularly with Viveka as the chair at the San Francisco Centre for, for many years. There's been a natural curiosity there about that kind of body-centered meditation. Would that be a characteristic of these longer meditation retreats you've done there, the sort of month-long or rainy season mm. retreats, those kind of things? Yeah, absolutely. To be honest, since I kind of woke up to the importance of the body, it's featured very prominently in all of my retreats. And yeah, I'd say it's only got more and more so as years have gone on because well, as I just said, I've realized that without that immediate direct experience of the body and our other body senses, we're inevitably just going to be making up stories in our mind. Now, there's something I want to ask you about in a minute, a distinctly techy, geeky thing. But first, since we're talking about embodiment and the body in general as a core aspect of this, in your second home retreat in this series, you took the idea of embodiedness further and explored what you called the dharma body the mm. retreat that was about the nature of the mind you raised this i suppose living metaphor or experiential metaphor of the dharma body you went on to introduce the idea of the nature of mind being made up of three bodies in big inverted commas if you'd see me do my air commas you described the three bodies as total undivided openness the illuminating clarity of awareness and unlimited spontaneous compassionate energy the risk here, I guess, is having moved from quite complex, quite alluring mental concepts back into the earthness of a body. Why present these three potential aspects of imagination and experience as bodies? How does that metaphor relate to the tradition? Is this you looking at traditional categorizations like Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, Nirmanakaya, mm -hmm. and trying to make that relevant to the everyday experience of meditators now? Why is it not a risk to take the experience back into metaphor in that way? Well, it's not intended to take it back into metaphor. It's more like those metaphors are pointing us back to our immediate experience. And you know, some of those may not be our immediate experience. In fact, they're traditionally the three bodies of Buddha, of Buddhahood. They're not going to be our experience until we have the requisite degree of experiential wisdom. But it's not that that is something which is, yet say, some thousands of lifetimes down, <laughs> down the path, is something which is actually immediately available. You know, it's something which is actually here, but the traditional way of putting it is that it's covered up by all sorts of emotions, disturbances, views, opinions, basically everything that we load onto it conceptually. And if we can simply experience what is here without those levels of mental imposition, then we will experience those three bodies as our essential nature. I'm aware listening to that, I mean, it sounds great. And some people might hear that and just think, well, that's quite a high bar, right? If we could just experience ourselves as total and divided openness, illuminating clarity of awareness and unlimited spontaneous compassionate energy. No biggie. That's what we're going to do. I'm assuming that this is why when you presented that material before, you talked quite a lot about imagination. And this is something mm -hmm. we've explored on a recent retreat with Vidyamala and Bishop yeah. Annie is yeah. the role of imagination as a kind of key way into experience. It's not necessarily something that takes you away from the body and away from your experience. It can actually be a portal 
in that sense. Mm. Yeah. Well, let's say imaginative methods can be very, very helpful as long as they don't become ends in themselves. I think the qualities of imagination are pointing to something which is much more immediate. For instance, I often use the metaphor of the body being like a cloud. That metaphor is intended to help people enter from the metaphor into the experience of the body as being literally like a cloud. In other words, noticing that it doesn't have any clear boundaries, noticing that it isn't any particular definite shape. And all of that involves using a metaphor to go beyond the various sort of mental projections we put onto our experience of the body and to experience it just as it is. I see metaphor in that way and the use of the imagination in that way. Imagination, like any capacity of mind, of mental activity, it can be of great value. And I mean, I'm not even talking about you know, the products of the imagination in terms of art and so forth, but how we use it in Buddhist terms, the approach of sadhana, where we imagine ourselves as a Buddha. Now, of course, we're not a Buddha, but if we use that method skillfully, it can actually lead us into this same realization that these three bodies, so-called, are our actual fundamental nature. That is what the practice of sadhana is intended for. Mm, so presumably this is part of the answer to that earlier question about what is it the Mahayana and Vajrayana traditions are trying to address about the earlier approaches in the shorter discourse and emptiness that are, as you were saying, more direct, more experiential, maybe more grounded in a certain sense. I'm assuming that what they bring to it is partly around imagination the role of something like sadhana, for example, in trying to become what it is you aspire to. Yeah, that is definitely one application. And sadhana uses imagination in a very, very skillful way. Right, this is my geeky techie bit, Tejananda. For some reason, this whole conversation has made me think of the new Vision Pro. I don't know if you've seen this, the Apple Vision Pro. There's been lots of hype around it as a product. These days, it would probably be parsed as a mixed reality headset. One of the things that really struck me about it from watching videos during the week is you can move through these different levels of immersion. So you're sitting in your room or you're sitting on an airplane or whatever it is, and you put on this thing and it doesn't attempt, at least at first, to take you to a different place. So it renders the space you're in, but overlays on top of it what they talk about as a spatial computing model. And in some of the videos you see, one of the interesting things was you can pin windows and leave them in different rooms. So if you're in your living room, you can pin a giant video screen to watch movies on that's like the size of an IMAX theater. Or, mm. you know, if you always do your cooking with a certain set of timers, you can pin them over your cooker, etc. And then when you put the headset on, if it hasn't restarted, they're still there. It got me thinking about what is experience? What is the experience of my house? What is the experience of my space? And then there's the additional aspect of if you dial it in, you can make your space disappear completely and be on the moon or be on the top of Mount Hood or something. Now, all of these in a certain way are playing with experience, people starting to play with almost the literalization of imagination. It's yeah. not that you're sitting visualizing yourself on the moon, for example, you're literally all of your senses are being shown the moon. And one of the things people talk about about this is that it does seem extremely compelling. Some very interesting articles about people talking about taking off the thing and feeling let down by the fact that all the things they've pinned are no longer there. And that really struck me as quite a poignant metaphor for some of what you're talking about today. We can construct all sorts of realities, but if it's not grounded somewhere, we notice the gap. It goes back to that thing of human beings for a long time have noticed the gap. 
Is there anything about that that strikes you? It sounds to me like it's, it's a metaphor for what we're doing all the time anyway. We literally don't realize the ways in which we're making up our reality from moment to moment. And there are lots of very simple practices that we can do to get a sense of this. For instance, you know, when I was talking about the room, we are actually in this room. Actually, most of that is our imagination. We have quite a limited amount of sensory input visually. You can see a certain amount of the room you're in, but you can't see all of it. Currently, I'm sitting here. I can't see the wall behind me. I can't see the ceiling. So I'm making that up. We're doing that with all of the senses. It's even true of talking. I'm making noises. Where does the sentence exist? The understanding only exists in the awareness of the recipient. It doesn't exist in any objective sense at all. That's a very good exemplification of emptiness. What our experience is empty of that we assume is there. Yeah, most of my visual experience is currently your room or the bit of your room that I can see yeah. on a fairly large monitor in front of me. And obviously most of my auditory experience is your voice coming through and somehow in my head, echoing around in my brain and making some sort of sense, hopefully making sense to listeners. Come back to the Vision Pro or virtual reality or mixed reality or augmented reality. One of the interesting things about how people speak about that is that they're having experiences. And I suppose they are, right? They are having experiences. We are having experiences all the time. But it does make it sort of quite clear that the nature of your experience from moment to moment can change quite radically depending on what it is you happen to be engaging with. In this case, a piece of technology, you literally turn a dial and your whole experience of place is transformed. But you're still there with your mind and probably a physical experience of your body if you can drag your attention away from space or whatever it is. And it's absolutely fascinating. In a way, technology is starting to make some of this manifest. It's much more changeable than we think it is. Well, it would be very interesting to see if people can design programs which actually help you gain wisdom. One of the apps on it is mindfulness and it's mm. a giant animation that you focus on and there's a voice instructing you about breathing and being yeah, in place. Yeah. And yeah, it is very interesting how this kind of technology appeals partly because on the surface it looks like it's an escape from mm. experience. And that I guess that's the great danger is that you constantly avoiding your experience or escaping from your experience. So we're not recommending that you do this home retreat with a Vision Pro headset or a MetaQuest 3 or whatever it is you happen to use. At the same time, there is something in that field that is not completely discreet from what happens when we close our eyes and begin to meditate, whether mm. we're visualizing a Buddha or just sitting with our experience of our body, which as we noted earlier, could be imagined. There's something about that, isn't there? The space that opens up when you close your eyes. Especially if you're fairly new to meditation, you notice, ah, there's all this stuff going on in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, until you just start practicing basic mindfulness, most people aren't aware that thoughts are endless. They're just going on all the time. And then the next thing is they think, well, I'm not cut out to be a meditator because I'm always thinking. But actually, that is the case with everybody. Yeah, it's not that personal, is it? It's just sort of going on as a process. Yeah. And our experience is colored by our emotional state. So it's very different if you're already in quite a sort of happy state. You sit and meditate and you have a happy experience. But you know, if you're upset or angry or you know, whatever might be going on for you, it's a totally different experience. So the coloring of the emotions is something that's really important to bring into awareness. That's interesting. It does bring us back to the forthcoming retreat, emptiness and compassion. 
I suppose one question that might arise from people is, well, are we going to be trying to pull people away from their experience by getting them to try and cultivate positive emotion? That's sometimes a critique you hear of that sort of practice. And mm. of course, the answer is no, we won't be doing that. But can you say a bit more about how the practices that you'll be using, at least as preliminaries for the exploration of emptiness, how they're not trying to write over your actual experience of upset or suffering or anger or grief or those kinds of things? Well, I think this isn't necessarily emphasised in traditional Buddhism, but we do have to acknowledge what's going on. It's absolutely vital. I mean, I do this at the beginning of just about every meditation these days, starting by just noticing that we're doing this out of compassion. This is frankly just for me. You know, I am suffering. I wish not to suffer. I'm doing this practice. It might be cultivation of metta out of that wish. I might be doing it initially in quite a bumbling way. You know, I'm not quite sure what metta is or whatever, but I do the practice. And gradually you realize that by doing the metta bhavana, you're actually working in the middle three stages with people and situations that you like and situations that you're indifferent to and people and situations which you dislike. So we're working with the three main directions of delusion, craving, aversion, delusion. So what we're doing is finding a place where we can experience whatever's going on. It might be unpleasant stuff, it might be pleasant stuff, it might be just sort of boring, indifferent stuff. But in all of those circumstances, there can be this quality of unconditional regard or unconditional love. I would especially emphasize, let there be unconditional love for the aspects of yourself which you're not happy with. I can't really be metaphor because I'm X, Y, Z. And that is absolutely not the case. It's absolutely not what it's about. It's about completely opening to and facing towards or turning towards exactly what we are. That is the only way towards wisdom, actually. If we turn away from that or create some sort of happy, happy land, that's not metta. That's not Dharma practice at all. That's really beautiful, actually, as a final idea and a way to end up with on this conversation, because I can sort of see how they mutually condition each other as well. It's pretty unlikely that you're going to get very far contemplating emptiness if you're not rooted in that just basic positive regard for yourself and for mm. others. I can also see how a practice of imaginatively engaging with emptiness and trying to find it in your body, trying to find the reality of that in your body, also strengthens your practice of things like the Brahma Viharas because it's informed by the Dharma at quite a deep mm -hmm. level. I suppose that's the classic thing with the Upeka Bhavna, the equanimity practices. One of the bases of equanimity is that you're all subject to the nature of the Dharma, you're all subject mm -hmm. to the nature of reality. It's a very lovely awareness that you're basically fine. You know, you're basically fine. We're also moving towards finding that actually that's our nature. At first, it seems like we're cultivating it and making it up and working on it. But eventually, it's just what we are. It's what we fundamentally are. It's quite different from original sin, but it's just a different way of imagining your place in the universe. Well, I mean, in Tibetan Buddhism, one of the archetypal Buddhas, Samantabhadra, means all good. That is, if you like, an imaginative teaching which points us to the fact that ultimately it is all good. On the level of the mind, immediately you can start arguing with that. Well, what about wars? What about, yeah, etc. All sorts of things. But actually, to get to the heart of that teaching is to realize that our nature is actually all good. That's certainly the experience, isn't it, when you stop fighting the nature of things? 
or the things you can't really control, but there's mm -hmm. something that is all good about you and I being subject to impermanence. Yeah. It's quite a relief, isn't it? When you just kind of let go into that, you think, oh, I don't need to do anything about that. <laughs> that's not up to me. So yeah. is there anything else you'd like to talk about with a retreat or anything that's come up in this conversation? I think the approaches that I'm going to be bringing out on this retreat are available to anybody. I don't want people to be frightened by me talking about the fullness spheres. Actually, we can get a sense of space right now. We are conscious. Consciousness is here. These are actually available. And people you know, who've been meditating for a while will have all that it takes to get a lot from those emptiness contemplations. But even just beginning to notice, okay, my experience is empty of city or whatever it might be. That is something which begins us on the path of seeing through the ways in which we're conceptually fabricating. We believe that there is somehow an experience of the city that we're not in right now. But it's only mental. That's not saying that the city isn't there. It's just saying that our experience of it right now is just mental. So that's a very basic thing. Even if it goes no further than that, you're well into a path of wisdom with that insight. I'm just having this experience listening to a relief, being reminded of that. It's such a freedom to not have to struggle where you're expecting it to be different. And that does open up all sorts of possibilities, that freedom. I guess that's one of the basic core Buddhist mm. experiences is liberation. Some form of letting go into a reality that isn't all centered on you. And that's a great thing. Mm, yeah. Well, yeah, thank you very much for coming to talk about it today. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this retreat. It's almost unbelievable that we've managed to put together a trilogy of in-depth online retreats. And there's such a good following for them. People love them. If you haven't been before, I'd encourage you just to dive in. There is a lovely context of support and sort of friendship online that just emerges from these spaces. It's quite a thing to do to all be in our homes and all show up three times a day to spend time in this kind of reflection and contemplation. So thanks very much to you, Tejananda, for coming and for your ongoing generosity in teaching in this way. And if you're listening, we'll have links to all the retreats, including the forthcoming one with Tejananda, Emptiness and Compassion, the Divine Abodes, in our show notes. You can also follow us on Instagram and newsletters and all that stuff. We'll put that there. I'd really encourage you to take the opportunity to go deep with this kind of work at home, wherever you live, whatever time zone you happen to be listening from. And if you've enjoyed this little dive into meditation practice and how it can transform your life, tell your friends about the podcast. It's the best way to make sure these tales of practice and of transformative dharma get out into the big world. I suspect Spotify probably won't sign a giant deal to make sure everyone hears about Tejananda's approach to Buddhism and meditation. You never know, but let's assume not for now. But we can be our own network of cultural exchange and a network of sharing stories rooted in awareness and love like this. So thanks again to Tejananda. Thanks to you for listening. Come on retreat online if you can. And if you can't, they'll be there in perpetuity as much as we can manage anyway for you to use in your own time. That's why they're home retreats. You can go back and revisit the teaching archive and follow the retreat in your own time, whenever you like. In the meantime, look after yourself, look after each other, and we'll be back with more episodes of the podcast soon. Bye.